Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin our New Year series, a series called The Best is Ahead. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled The Birth Pangs. In his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn tells a story that I'd like to repeat. I'm using my own words. It was 1952. Young Florence Chadwick, the first woman to swim the English Channel, well, she decided to take another long swim. This time, she would swim from Catalina Island to the shore of the mainline California coast, which is about a a 35-kilometer swim. So the waves swell because it's open water. It's not easy to swim it. And that morning, the weather was cold and foggy, and Florence could hardly see the boat accompanying her. She was determined, however. After 15 hours in the water, she was exhausted, and she begged to be taken on board. They pulled her up out of the water, and she had been defeated. She was also emotionally and physically exhausted. But then she noticed something. To her astonishment, the coastland of California was about a half a kilometer away. She had come oh so close, but all the while had been unaware of how close she had come to making this historic swim. And at the news conference, all she could say was, if I had seen the shore, I know that I would have made it. Well, it's time to think about a new year. You know, over the years, I have loved ushering in the new year, thinking about our Lord's second coming. I do this quite deliberately. Should you in this new year lose perspective, fall into sin and be lacking in zeal and fail to repent, or if you simply become discouraged or distracted, I speak about the second coming so that you might see how close you are to the shore and not give up. The reality is, what's going to occur in this coming year is known fully to God, but to us it remains a mystery. And furthermore, there are those who look forward to the future with a great deal of fear. You know, whether it's disease or the pandemic, whether it's financial uncertainty, or even the thought of financial catastrophe, or whether we cast our eyes wider. Looking at the global scene, some of us fear that war might be on the horizon. But for the believer who has put his or her confidence fully in Christ, we know with certainty that our best days are not behind us, nor are our best days the ones we're living today. Our best days lie in the future. One day Christ will return. He'll gather his elect to him and present us with an eternal kingdom. This is the blessed hope of the believer. And so for that reason, I love to, as we approach a new year, concentrate on the second coming of Jesus. This week, I want to take all week and carefully examine Jesus' lengthy teaching on this subject. It's found in Matthew chapter 24. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. The events described in this chapter happened on a Tuesday. It was on the previous Sunday that Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, an event that we now call Palm Sunday. And on Monday, he had cursed the fig tree and he cleansed the temple. On this day, on Tuesday, he had gone from Bethany into Jerusalem again. They'd noticed the fig tree that he had cursed the previous day. It was withered. On this day, he also went into the temple courts. There was a controversy as the religious leaders tried to discredit him, attempting to trip him up in his words, attempting to drive a wedge between him and the crowd of people who followed him. But Jesus, as we would put it, was on his game. He turned the tables on the critics, and they looked dangerously close to having discredited themselves. But the day was getting late, and it was time to go to Bethany, where he was staying. 
And it's at this point that we pick up the narrative of Matthew 24. So let's start by reading verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, as both Luke and Mark mention this story, they tell us that the disciples were remarking about the beauty of the stones. So viewing the temple from the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side of the Kidron Valley, that was really a beautiful sight. And you have to wonder at this point what the disciples were thinking. I mean, hadn't they even been listening to Jesus at all? You know, yesterday he had cursed the fig tree, and today, as he's been leaving the city, he was saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then he ended that saying by adding, See, your house is left to you desolate. He must have meant in speaking of your house, that is, Jerusalem's house is left desolate. That meant the temple. It's left desolate, or the days will come when it will be left desolate. All that went straight over the disciples' head. I mean, they were, from their vantage point, overwhelmed with the beauty of the temple. And so it's time for Jesus to speak as clearly and as plainly as possible. Are you admiring all these things? Look, not one stone will be left on another. This house, this building, this place that serves as the center of worldwide Judaism will be utterly and completely destroyed. Now, as we read this, we have the advantage of viewing these sayings from history. Jesus uttered these words in the spring of 33, and by AD 70, the Roman army under its commander Titus completely destroyed the temple. Jesus, as the Son of God, sees clearly what God has planned for this temple. Don't be so enamored, he says, with the things that will soon be no more. I think this is an apt word for us today, don't you think, as we face a new year? Whether we're weeping for a world that we think is soon passing away, or whether we look at this world with longing eyes, wanting it to go on as long as possible, it's important to remember that soon this earth is to be no more. And that's exactly what the disciples understood Jesus to be saying. Jesus, they say, if you're talking about the destruction of the temple, at least this is how they thought, then you must be talking about the very end of the world. And that's the explanation of verse 3. They sit down on the Mount of Olives and they want Jesus to teach them. Tell us, when will this temple be destroyed? Are we talking about something that will soon occur? Or are these things still well off into the future? Now, of course, in their minds, the discussion of the destruction of the temple and of the end of the age are events that have to happen at the same time. And so, Jesus, they say, tell us how close we are to the end times. I know that this matter of trying to get a handle on how far we are in the prophetic timetable is a matter that's often interested contemporary Christians as well. Prophecy conferences often argue that we're very close now. And they may well be right. I mean, the coming of the Lord may well be in this coming year. All the events of the last days will suddenly be upon us. The sky will be suddenly parted and Christ himself will appear in the heavens and the nations of the earth will mourn. But I'm an old guy and I remember. See, I remember those who taught with a fervor that it would be no more than 40 years after Israel became a nation that our Lord would return. Well, now Israel became a nation in 1948. 
and I wasn't around then, but 40 years later, that was 1988, and that year came and went, and our Lord did not return. Then there were those who taught that the generation that was born already, that is when 1948 came, that generation would not pass away until Jesus returned. But of course, I mean, do the math. It's beginning to look highly unlikely. And so they were wrong. Israel becoming a nation in 1948 did not start the prophetic clock at all. Indeed, no part of the Bible said it would. And for those who think it did, stick with me as we go through Matthew 28, and I'll show you that it's definitely not the case. And I remember those who actually argued that when the European common market began, that was the last end times empire. See, when they said the European Union reaches 10 nation states, that will be the last great empire, the empire of the Antichrist. And at the time of this recording, there are now 27 member states. So again, there goes another one. You know, to the most part, I'm just embarrassed by all these end-time prophetic teaching points meant to show us how close we are to the shoreline. I think we need to repeat the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. Now, now here's a little secret. In the Greek, Matthew 25, 13 means, yeah, you know neither the day or the hour. You don't know. So all the guessing will only make us look foolish. How much more plain could Jesus have been? But the disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives come as disciples. They say, teach us, Master. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, here's a fascinating observation. The phrase, the end of the age, well, that's used six times in the New Testament, and five of those occurrences are found in the book of Matthew. The phrase always refers to the collapse of this present era, which will be followed by the final judgment. Could you tell us, say the disciples, what is the sign that this time period is indeed upon us? Again, although it was asked some 2,000 years ago, doesn't that question sound so very contemporary? Hi, Ben Lowell. Wanting to thank all those who've already so graciously sent a gift toward our year-end campaign. Your gifts enable the unique Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including today's program with Dr. Neufeld, to take place. This past year has been extraordinary. Many have struggled through challenges never anticipated, and we continue to pray for you. One of our ministry goals during these days was to ensure there would be no negative impact upon the ministry programming or delivery. I'm grateful to say that with your support and prayers, this goal was achieved. We're also excited about the potential of reaching our year-end fiscal goal of $490,000 by December 31st. We're well on our way, but have a distance to go. Could I ask you to prayerfully consider how you might join us in this effort? Simply call with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or contribute online at backtothebible.ca. Your support is beyond kindness. It is the foundation for ministry in 2022 and will result in so many hearing the gospel and continuing to grow in faith. Matthew 24, or the Olivet Discourse, is Jesus teaching the 12. If as he has taught them, the temple is about to be destroyed, what then is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And over this week, I want to examine Jesus' teaching on this matter. And I do so with a view that we should not lose heart in the struggle or the hardships of the past or the perceived hardships in the future that should cause us to be discouraged or to lose hope. So let's begin. I'm reading Matthew 24, 4-14. Then Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, whenever we read a text of Scripture, it's both necessary to examine closely what it says and at the same time what it doesn't say. And so let's begin by noticing what it doesn't say. The text doesn't say that just before the end, there are going to be more wars, more earthquakes, more persecution. Notice there's no indication of an increasing intensity of anything. Well, then what does it actually say? Look at what we've just read at face value, and you might notice that before the end comes, these things simply keep happening. Indeed, you might have noticed that Jesus uses an image, and it's found right there in verse 8. He says, these are the beginning of birth pangs. Let me see if I can explain that. All women who have given birth to children will understand that image quite well. And might I add, all husbands who stood with their wives also understand it quite well. There are the beginning of birth pangs. Pangs that might not be the process of birth, not yet. They're often been called Braxton Hicks contractions. I mean, these are contractions that are felt in the second and third trimester of a pregnancy. The uterus contracts, which is the body's way of preparing for the true labor. But the presence of those contractions don't mean that the labor has begun. And that's Jesus' point. The things that will be a part of the signs of the second coming don't mean the actual events have begun. But they do mean that the things are being prepared for the appearing of our Lord at the end of the age. Now, from what Jesus has said, there are five of these birth pains. The first is found in verses 4 and 5, and their appearance of false messiahs. So let's read it again. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Well, the great danger in difficult times is to blindly follow a self-proclaimed Savior. Notice also that the false messiahs come in Jesus' name, and that, well, it might mean that they come claiming to be the actual Messiah or that they claim to be the the next representation of Jesus for this current era. Now, if you carefully read your New Testament in chronological order, you're going to find that the later books, well, they're books like First and Second Peter and Jude, the letters of John, well, they all have a very common theme. These books are fighting with what has become a larger and larger threat, the threat of false teaching. But of course, we don't have to wait till the end of the New Testament until we see it. I mean, how many of Paul's letters deal with false teachers? 
Think, for instance, of the Pauline epistle of Philippians, Philippians 3, 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, those who mutilated the flesh, that that was a reference to the Judaizers. And they insisted that unless a male is circumcised, he can't be saved. Now, this was leading many people astray so that their confidence was in law-keeping rather than in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But, and this is essential, these false teachers came in my name, or they came saying that their teaching was the kind of teaching that Jesus would give. And when Jesus said they will come in my name, he means to say they will come deceiving people into thinking that they are saying things in tune with Jesus. I mention this because in history, you know, some have indeed claimed to be the Messiah, but the number of those claimants has not been as great a problem as those who are simply false teachers. Now, I think that the best way to understand Jesus' words is that the Christ or the Messiah speaks of those who claim to come in Jesus' name, but also they come with a claim to be a great Savior. And of those, there have been many. Whether it's a politician or a religious leader or even a pope, false saviors are aplenty. So that's the first birth pain. Let's look at the second. It's found in verses 6 to 8. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. See, this second section is a general description of the state of the earth. Wars will continue until Jesus returns. So will national competition, which includes mistrust and hatred between nations. Earthquakes and famines will also continue. Again, as I've said before, as we read these things, we're not to think that the days after Jesus came are so very different than the days before he came. I mean, if I understand this rightly, Jesus is saying that the cataclysmic events he's speaking about will be a part of this current age all the way until Christ returns again. He's telling his disciples that he's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He's come to establish his church but that will not take away the suffering that is a part of being in this sin-cursed earth. It will carry on until he returns. And so, number one, Jesus warned us of the abundance of false Christs and false teachers that will continue to draw people away from the gospel. And then he's promised that in the current age of sin and death, well, it's going to carry right on, as it was before, right until the close of the age. Now, third, he promises us that believers will have to suffer in the current age. And in that regard, he promises us that persecution will be our lot all the way until the second coming. Look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, of course, there have been places and times when, when the gospel has been welcomed and embraced by you know, various cultures and various times. But we should not think that the advance of the gospel will result in worldwide peace. Instead, it will result in persecution and even death. The cost of bringing the gospel forward will be high. And then fourth, Jesus also promises a great apostasy or a great falling away. Verses 10 to 13. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, please let your mind focus on that very last sentence. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And we need to stop there 
and take those words with all the seriousness that Jesus placed into them. Following Jesus will require that we remain faithful to either the end of our natural lives or until the actual time of his return. If we should be among those who fall away from the faith so that we are no longer a practicing Christian, or if we are in the group that betrays other believers, or if we're in the group that follows false prophets, or if we're in the group that practices lawless living, or lives contrary to the commands of Jesus or Scripture, or finally, if we're in the group who no longer loves our Savior, if we're in any one of those categories, we're not among those who have endured, and for that reason, we will not be saved in the final hour. Dear listener, please hear the words of Jesus. Jesus didn't say, but oh no, if you asked you know, Jesus into your life five to 15 years ago, it doesn't apply to you. No, no, he said, if you don't endure, you won't be saved. You'll need to endure. You'll need to persevere in the faith. You'll need to hold fast to the gospel, continue to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and be loyal to them and obey the commands of our Lord Jesus and remain fervent in your faith. You need to endure. And fifth, we have one final sign, and it's a part of the prophetic calendar. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That is, when the task of global evangelization has been completed, the end of the age will indeed be upon us. So in this coming year, be about the master's business. Pray fervently that the gospel would go forward, contribute to missions, be involved in evangelism, and thus hasten the end of the current age. Thanks for a great message, John. Look forward to the series. Let me ask you, you know, the text says we don't know the day or the hour. So what is the basis for our hope in Christ's return as we live today? Well, one of the words that Christians tend to throw around is the word imminence. And that means, uh, yeah, we don't know, but any generation can be the generation that lives to see Christ. So, you know, we don't have to say to ourselves, oh, wait a minute, the signs haven't all come to pass. And the response is, you don't actually know the day or the hour, and therefore you ought to live with expectancy. And uh, I think that's the idea behind it. So we do not know when Christ will return, and he may return very quickly. Live in anticipation. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Best is Ahead, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure, April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back of the Bible Canada team. The full itinerary is available online, but space is limited, and we're nearing capacity, so register soon. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca slash events.